Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. The Appearance Psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to how we look. I'm Nadia, and today we're sharing the third and final keynote address from our international conference, Appearance Matters 7, given by our very own Professor Diana Harcourt. Di is one of our wonderful co-directors here at the Centre for Appearance Research, alongside Professor Nicola Rumsey, OBE. Nikki will be introducing Di for her fascinating talk on visible difference in low-income countries. So, it gives me enormous pleasure, as you can imagine, to um, welcome Professor Diana Harcourt to deliver a keynote at this conference. I've known Di since 1992, which is a a bit of an indictment of me as well as it is of her. I knew her first when she was an undergraduate on the BSc psychology program, a new new psychology program at UWE. And she was one of those group of mature students who always sat in the front and asked lots of questions. But (laughs) it became very quickly apparent that, that she was on the rise to a very meteoric career. But one thing you may not know about Di is that she um, toyed with a career in banking before she um, decided to do psychology. She gave it all up at some point in the piece, despite the fact that she was on a fast track to to somewhere very meteoric in banking as well, I'm sure. Decided to travel, and that's significant, and also mercifully for us all to study psychology. So, as I said, her stellar qualities very quickly became apparent as an undergraduate. She got a first-class honours, which in those days was a very rare and wonderful thing. She made the very astute choice to become um, a research associate in the National Health Service and did a part-time PhD on the impact of speedier diagnosis on breast cancer. Her rise continued. She went through all the ranks at UE very quickly and became co-director of CAR in 2009. And she was awarded her personal chair, Professor of Appearance and Health Psychology, in 2012. Dyes had a significant influence on the broader field of health psychology as well as on her own field of visible difference. She was chair of the Division of Health Psychology, the British Psychological Society's division, in 2009 to 10 and was on the committee for a lot longer than that and put her indelible stamp on the direction of that division. She's also shaped research and practice in visible differences. She's published prolifically. She's written and been involved in policy documents and professional standards and she's attracted millions of pounds for research along the way. So as well as her prolific impact, Di is the best colleague that I could possibly wish for, and all those who work with her would agree with me. She's incredibly hardworking. She pauses for breath only to travel, and that again is significant to today's talk. In recent years, Di's extended her sphere of influence from being UK-wide to the global stage, and she's managed to combine a love of travel and her passion to improve the experiences of people living with visible differences. And this is the focus of her keynote today, visible differences in low-income countries. Can I introduce the very wonderful Professor Diana Harcourt? Thank you, Nikki. I didn't really recognise the person you are introducing there, but I'm going to give you a talk on banking. That probably wasn't what you were expecting, was it? I really want to thank the conference organisers, Heidi and Philippa and Amy, for inviting me to come and speak today and for giving me this topic to talk about. Because as Nikki says, it's a chance for me to talk about 
two of my loves, which is appearance research, but importantly, travel, particularly around parts of the world, such as India and Bangladesh, which I find so stimulating. I want to talk about the issues of visible differences in low-income countries. I'm going to start broad, then go a bit more specifically, and then broaden out a little bit. So I'm going to talk about terminology, definitions, and incidences of what we mean by this, then focus on visible difference more generally, and then focus in specifically around the psychosocial issues relating to burns, and most specifically those, related, those as a result of acid attacks and acid burns, and then look at the support and interventions available for that group in Bangladesh. And I'm going to draw on published research literature where it's available, but there's not a huge amount. So I'm taking the liberty of drawing on my own anecdotes of having been there, just being fortunate enough just to have a couple of brief visits to the Acid Survivors Foundation in Bangladesh, and also drawing on conversations that I've had with colleagues and people who are working in the field and people who are conducting research and gaining their insights into what the current issues and challenges may be, and then to look ahead. Just a few suggestions for things that we could consider, but actually I think probably going to be raising more questions than answers. So the first part, to think about terminology definitions. I could spend the whole time talking about whether we should be discussing developing countries, resource-poor countries, low-income countries. Should we be talking about visible difference, disfigurement, altered appearance? But I kind of feel those discussions and conversations are out there if you're interested and you can pursue them in your own time. But for the sake of this afternoon, I'm talking about an appearance that is different from the norm as a result of a congenital or acquired condition trauma or treatment for disease in a country where the resources and access to medical and psychosocial interventions is very limited. So what do we mean by a low-income country? Well, according to the World Bank, strictly speaking, a low-income country is where the gross national income per person, just over a thousand US dollars per year, so really not much at all. And if we add in lower middle income countries, we're still only looking at up to just over 4,000 US dollars a year. There are 31 low-income countries in the world, according to the World Bank, where 613 million people live. And if we include lower-middle-income countries, we're adding another 51 countries. And within those countries, how many people are affected by a visible difference or not an appearance? Well, I'll just give you some examples. Those different categories that we often use when we talk about visible difference. So just as an example of one type of congenital condition, cleft lip and palate, according to the SMILE train, there are around 170,000 babies each year born with a cleft, and of those, around 35,000 are born in India. If you think about examples for possible disease, it sometimes surprises people to realise that there are still new cases of leprosy being diagnosed each year. And in 2011, there were over 200,000 new cases, and of those, more than half were in India. The skin condition vitiligo globally affects between a half and 2% of the world's population, but countries like Nigeria and India are at the top end of that range. The area that I'm focusing on is burns as an example of one type of trauma. And when you get into this realm, the figures, I think, are quite staggering. That 95% of all burns in the world are take place in low- or middle-income countries. And more than 50% of fire-related deaths <coughs> occur in Southeast Asia. In India alone, more than 1 million people each year sustain moderate or severe burn. And in Bangladesh, there's more than 173,000 children are moderately or severely burnt each year. And just to put that into context, it means that in Bangladesh, by the time I finish this presentation, on average, 20 children will have had a moderate or severe burn. And again, it's the low- and middle-income countries are the most affected. 
What's the cause of this? Well, when it comes to burns, globally, there is an association between the incidence of burns and socioeconomic status. Poverty is a cause linked with burn-related injuries. And we add to that, in some of these countries, severe overcrowding. And burns from accidents are very common. So in countries like India, Bangladesh, there's a lot of cooking on open fires. And the women in these countries are so beautifully dressed in the most amazing saris, but those fabrics are very fine, and it doesn't take much to catch a flame. There's also a lot of incidences of electrical burns, and unfortunately, incidences of burns as a result of violence and acid burns, which is what I'm going to talk about mostly in this presentation. Added to that, there are what we would consider to be the causes of a burn injury, but beliefs about what those causes may be have to come into the equation. We've got to think about what do people consider or understand why somebody may um, um, sustain a, a visible difference, a disfiguring condition. Now, these quotes aren't all in relation to burns. Some of them are into disfigurement more generally. But across these, time again, the view that, well, this is due to God or some kind of higher being has brought this upon you, or it's some kind of punishment. You must have done something bad in a previous life, or you've done something bad in this life in order for this to happen to you. Maybe you made fun of somebody with a disfigurement many years ago, and these views are, are still very prevalent. So the view that there is some kind of karma or a reason why somebody should sustain it. At this point, in a moment, I'm going to play you a short clip from a charity called Interburns, who I'll talk to you about again later on. This short clip gives you some indication, again, of why burns may be sustained in low-middle-income countries, but also the possible impact that that may have, in both in appearance, but also in terms of physical functioning, and how sometimes quite simple treatments might make a real difference. What happens when you live in a low or middle income country, you cook on an open fire, and you have work to do? When our mother comes back, she was already lying on an open fire there with all her face and hands. She could go ahead but could not crawl back. When your electricity supply keeps failing the whole village. He was trying to help his villagers, so he climbed up the electric pole and he got the electrical bond. When you just don't understand the risk involved. He lost his thumb. He had a very deep burn in his skull. 95% of burns occur in low and middle income countries. In India, burns is a very significant problem and it's only increasing every day. The main cause is kerosene related. It's the time, you know, all the petrol, it spelt in himself, and then he got, he got fire. 70% of those burns injuries affect children. <laughs> the outcomes are so much worse in low-income countries compared to high-income countries. So there's patients neglected, on wards, no one really knowing what to do, staying in hospital far longer than they need to, ending up with far more complications than they need to suffer. She developed the hypertrophic scar over the faces and this contracture over the neck. A contracture is a shrinkage of the skin which the body makes when it's trying to heal up. If you were to burn your hand, it would go into this position. If a burn is not treated well, then it can lead to permanent disability. With a little bit of splinting, contractures can be quite cheaply and easily prevented. If you were to put the splint around the neck, that would stop the chin sticking down onto the chest. It means that those contractures don't happen. For the ne this next part, I want to focus on one particular type of burn, which is acid burns. In Bangladesh, they have the unfortunate record of having the highest incidence of acid burns in the world. 
the number of incidences have reduced dramatically since 2002. So whereas they were at an all-time high of almost 500 burns attacks per year, they're now down to about 75 individuals affected each year. Any kind of burn injury has lifetime consequences. So we're not talking about 50, 60 or 70. In Bangladesh alone, there's 3,582 people were attacked. And they were living, you know, those scars don't disappear, so they are living with the lifetime consequences. Around 50% of those were women, and, and then around a quarter are attacks on men, and some really harrowing stories, which I won't go into details about, are uh, when children have been affected. The drop in 2002 was thought to be as a result of the introduction of two laws that governed the transfer and the sale of acid and how people who were convicted of the crime were sentenced. And it really had a change in attitudes towards an acid crime and acid attacks in Bangladesh. And Bangladesh has really led the way in bringing in legislation to change things. When I was listening to Bryn's great talk, there were a lot of similarities and I thought, or well, slight overlaps, and I think this is a good example that burns is often considered to be a public health issue these days. And here's an example of how some legislation is reducing the incidence of burns. But we should also bear in mind that more than 90% of burns in Bangladesh aren't due to acid or, or aren't chemical related. But this is the particular one that I'm just going to focus on for now. If anybody is interested in knowing more, I'd encourage you to look at the acidsurvivors.org website. And in the middle of their front page, there's a rolling screen of news about latest incidences. And just to give you a snapshot of over the last month or so, a couple in their 40s were attacked while sleeping. Attacks um, while sleeping is very common, unfortunately. And the idea that this took place in the dark, so how could you know who had done this to you? A woman of 35 was attacked over a land dispute. A man of 38 was force-fed acid because of a, a political dispute. A woman of 18 was attacked after a marital dispute. And a female student was attacked because she rejected the advances of somebody who wanted a romantic relationship with her. And those categories are not uncommon for people's motivations or the reasons that acid attacks take place. Globally, there are more than 1,500 attacks every year, and around 80% of those are on women, which comes to the conclusion that these are generally considered to be gender-based violence and reflecting women's inequality in society. So... Why are there so many acid attacks taking place in Bangladesh? Unfortunately, acid is cheap to obtain and easy to access, but it can't be banned because it's necessary for a lot of industry and you can't just say it's not available anymore. When acid attacks take place, typically they, they involve throwing acid in the face and the facial scarring is the one thing that's very striking in particular, but also in many cases it means there's a loss of sight but speech and swallowing could be affected as well. So although we're talking about appearance issues, we can't distinguish the appearance and there's function as well going on. The, um, the treatment is going to be ongoing and involve very long and often ho numerous hospital stays. Whilst I was in um, Bangladesh at the Acid Survivors in February of this year, and I met a woman there who had been in the hospital for six years, and because of the nature of her attack, she wasn't able to eat, so she was fed um, by a tube and until she has further surgery which can't take place in Bangladesh she is still in hospital. Acid attacks, we start to look at the literature around acid attacks and these are four papers all been published in Burns journals and I wanted to put these in just to emphasize that, that there is an interest in this in various countries but these papers they're all talking about the incidents, 
the motivations, the treatment for them. And most of them do refer to there being a psychological or psychosocial aspect. But that isn't based on patients' experiences, patient-reported patient um, information. It's not based on qualitative work. It's kind of observational, if you like, and people's assumptions about what the impact would be. But importantly, the other thing that these studies throw up is the need, although I'm going to be talking about Bangladesh, is not to consider all lower or middle-income countries to be the same. And that each one, there is variation amongst them dramatically, just as we wouldn't consider all, all higher-income countries to be the same. So, for example, in Cambodia, the rate of acid burns is, is about 48%. The, the victim is a man. And actually, more women are the attackers than there are men. So we've got cultural differences going on in, in different countries as well. So the other thing these papers consider is issues like first aid, but what they're not considering is the psychosocial impact. Well, we wouldn't consider it to be psychosocial research. So what is available? What do we know about the impact of having a burn in a lower-income country? Well, I've looked to this first of all to consider, okay, what do we know about the impact of having a visible difference or looking different anywhere? And particularly, how do we, what do we add to that when we consider the consequences of this being an acid burn? Well, I've already mentioned that the, the treatment and recovery can be lengthy. It all can be incredibly painful. So the injury itself, incredibly painful. Going through the treatment, experiences such as having dressings changed, by all accounts, is one of the most painful things you could imagine that you could go through. The physical impact, as we've seen, is not only scarring, but also contracture, disability, vision, speech, swallowing. But the big thing that so many people refer to is the reactions of other people. And I mentioned karma already. The visible difference literature, more generally, often talks about other people's reactions, the experience of being stared at because you look different to other people, other people feeling that they can um, ask questions about what happened to you. And if, you, if that happened again and again, but on top of this, you know that you think that people are thinking something bad, you must have done something bad to cause this having to deal with other people's reactions on a day-to-day -day basis. The many, many tales of discrimination within in society, both in relation to work and in schools, but also by family members themselves. And unfortunately, there's a high proportion of cases in which the person who perpetrated the acid attack is actually a member of that person's family. So whereas often we would hope that a family would be a source of support for somebody who is living with a visible difference, what if a member of that family is the person who's caused it in the first place? And how do we manage that when it comes to issues around providing social support? So issues in the broader literature, visible difference literature, we often talk about issues around stigma and shame. And certainly anecdotally and the literature that does exist, this is still an issue in low-income countries, but I'm going to come back to this later. But you can start to understand why people may become very anxious about social situations whether that's on a day-to-day -day basis or particularly going into situations for the first time, if you're walking into a room, meeting people who haven't met you before. Any situation in which you feel that you are being judged on your appearance. And from a psychological perspective, you could see what that could do to somebody in terms of feelings of anxiety, depression, withdrawal, and quality of life. The financial implications are huge for burns to patients. Any kind of burn, but in particularly an acid burn, it's hard to get a job because of the judgments that people make. If you're not going to be working, then you've got a loss of income. But in Bangladesh, people are paying for their treatment. And I've heard of stories of people where their dressings haven't been changed because they couldn't afford to pay for the dressings. 
And in a situation around burns injuries, you add to that the concerns around infection if dressings aren't being changed. And things just seem potentially to get, be getting worse. There's also the issue of marriage and relationships. And in, in some of these countries, such a value is placed in the importance of a good marriage. And if your appearance has been affected by something like this, then your chances of marriage is reduced more than considerably. But if you add to this when it's um, an acid burn, or any burn actually, but think about the potential for post-traumatic stress and flashbacks about when did this happen, and also about fears of a repeat attack. In many instances, the person who caused the attack is somebody known to the person who's affected. So the worry is that this is going to happen again. There's also concern around feelings of injustice and anger because rates of prosecution are very low. In Bangladesh, it's only around about 10% even now. In many cases, people don't want to bring cases forwards. And if they do, then the chances of it going through to somebody being found guilty are very low. There's also the impact on the family, whether that's emotional, financial, and social. In some instances, there are accounts of when there are business disputes. And one way for a, somebody who's running one business to have an, an edge over a competitor is to act, and this sounds co-horrific, but to invent an acid attack on a member of the other family because the implications for that family are so severe, the financial costs, the shame that it brings to the family, that the business will be affected. There's a woman called Sweetie. She was attacked when she was younger. She loved dancing, and she was a great dancer. And she was attacked by acid and was treated at the Acid Survivors Foundation. And she had quite serious attack. And years later, she started dancing again. And I should say in the meantime, she had got married. She, after the treatment, she started dancing again. And she entered a dance competition. And I think it was a national competition. And at the end, the judges in front of everybody said, yep, we all agree the best dancer was Sweetie. But she can't win this competition. We can't give the prize to her because of how she looks. So they gave the prize to the person who came second. And they were very public about that. And just an example of the kind of discrimination and the effects that people would be experiencing on a daily basis. These are some quotes from a study that, um, that was conducted through the Acid Survivors Foundation last year. It's a mixture of quantitative and qualitative research. Some quotes from people who had been affected. P people think it's my fault. They avoid me. I have nothing to do except curse my fate. Well, one day I went into the shop to buy some salt and the shopkeeper blurted out, oh, after seeing this disfigured face, I wondered what will happen to me today and his words hurt me really badly or it shattered all my dreams. Now, I mentioned that there hasn't been very much published research, but the first study that had been published looking at the psychosocial aspects was Manon et al. Sample of 44 people that randomly selected from the Acid Survivors Foundation's database. And this study used a range of established measures, the hospital anxiety and depression scale, Rosenberg's self-esteem, and the Derriford appearance scale, which some of you may be familiar with, is a measure of social avoidance, social anxiety in relation to appearance, developed by Tim Moss and others, who um, Tim's in our center. And I'm gonna come back and mention the DAS again later. And what they found in this study was that there was no association between the severity of the injury and their self-reports on all these measures. And that's really interesting because that's what we find in research over here, is that we can't equate the extent of somebody's disfigurement with measures of distress. So you can't look at somebody and think, well, okay, their disfigurement is more widespread or it's more extensive, it's more severe, so they must be more 
distressed. It's not as simple as that. So although that finding was the same, on all those measures, the outcomes were poorer than they were here in the UK, except for the measure of negative self-concept on the Derrickford appearance scale, on the DAS. And that may well be because their sample came from people who had a very close association with this particular charity and the support that they were providing. They also looked at the, the associated those outcomes in relation to the cause of people's injury. And there were poorer outcomes amongst those who'd been attacked by a relative or a spouse. And that's significant, as I mentioned before, because we often look to family members to be a source of support to help people who have been affected by burn injuries. So what this study showed us 10 years ago now is that the impact of facial disfigurement was in some respects, when we use these measures, similar to how they are in the UK, but the degree of morbidity was significantly greater. So having looked at that, it leads you to think, well, okay, what is it that's making the difference? And research that's been led by Nikki here in the UK has been, in the past, we've been looking at what is it that distinguishes the people who manage really well and the who, people for whom disfigurement and a visible difference is a real challenge, has a real negative impact. So this is data collected from the UK. But I've started to think, well, could, what, how, to what extent might these same things be of any association, any relevance in other countries? So in that particular study, around half of people reported clinical levels of anxiety and around a quarter levels of depressive symptoms, and about two-thirds reporting significant levels of social anxiety and social avoidance. And what we found in that study was that adjustment, so doing well, wasn't predicted by the things that people often assume will make a difference. So things like age or gender, living arrangements by which we mean were they married, were they single, and the visibility of their difference to other people. Instead, what adjustment was influenced by were psychosocial factors, so optimism, people's outlook on life. But really important, I think, in this situation was their fear of negative evaluation, the extent to which they thought people would judge them badly, and the extent to which they felt socially accepted by others, and the extent to which they were satisfied with social support. But as I say, this was data, and similar studies have confirmed these findings since, but it's based on high and middle-income countries. Tom Hotaker, who leads Interburns, in 2012 wrote that anecdotal evidence from Pakistan and Nepal appears to confirm that those with strong social networks, particularly in the form of supportive family and friends, appear to adjust and manage the advance of vis visible difference more successfully. And he was relating in relation to low-income countries. So it strikes me that we know from the visible difference literature in this country the importance of family support and peers. And it would start to suggest that, yes, there are, it's equally, it is very important in low- and middle-income countries as well. But we've got this issue that when you're affected by some kinds of visible differences, such as acid burns, that's not always there. This quote was from 2009, a quote from, a quote, sorry, in relation to thoughts around people with a disfigurement more generally. And this was from family members. The disfigured female in the family is terribly embarrassing. And parents would be really worried if their child was disfigured. Now, at this point, I started to think, and Bryn mentioned it yesterday, referred to Maslow's um, triangle. And whilst I was in Dhaka earlier this year, somebody said to me, in this whole point about appearance, you know, it's not, a, it's not relevant here because it is only for people that have got lots of money and we're struggling with more basic things, so it's just not important. And it got me thinking about the Maslow's hierarchy. 
And we've got enough of an evidence, both in research and anecdotally, and it's just evident all the time that you're there, that attitudes towards appearance are so, so valued, so based on having a good appearance there, on looking good. And if you do have some kind of disfiguring condition, particularly if it's burn and acid burn, then it's something that you've done. Then attitudes towards them will impact on people's employment and their education. So at that lower level, how can people, if it's impacting on employment and education, it's going to be linking with poverty. Now then, things like your basic level physiological needs. If you've had a serious wound, you need good diet in order for that to, to heal well. And in some situations, if you're having to pay for your medical care, you need the income to be able to pay for it to get the best care possible. And your safety needs, if you've been attacked and you're worried that that person may come back and attack you again, your basic safety needs aren't being met. And your fear of acceptance in society, that's already clear already, but and conversations that I've had with people out there time and again, this was the thing that just keeps coming across, I don't feel accepted, I don't feel valued. So my argument would be that actually appearance underpins all this. There is a link right the way through, right up to the top with people's dreams being shattered. So what kind of support and interventions are available? I thought to do this, I'd start to draw some kind of, a basic kind of comparison between one example of a country from a high-income country, so the UK, versus Bangladesh as an example of a lower-middle-income country. So Bangladesh, a much larger population, but living in a smaller area, so it's a very densely populated country. In the UK, any, I have to say, any data around the incidence of burn injuries is always problematic, but we have something called IBID, which is the International Burns Injury Database. And that it would suggest that in the UK, there are around 500 moder moderate or severe burn injuries amongst children each year in the UK. In Bangladesh, as I said, there were 173,000 a year. That works out at 474 per day. So they're dealing with each day what we're dealing with in the year in the UK. If you add to that, think, well, there must be a role for psychology here. I have to say, these figures are really hard. I contacted the BPS, the British Psychological Society, a few weeks ago to ask for their figures, and they didn't have them. But I did find this, something published by Peter Kinderman in 2013. And at that time, there were more than 9,600 members of the Division of Clinical Psychology in the UK. And he, he quoted that there were 650 clinical psychology doctorates being awarded in the UK each year. And that's the best that I could get, to get some indication of the numbers of people with some kind of clinical psychology training. This is clinical psychology. It's not including other types of psychology or counselling. I tried to find the same in Bangladesh. And two years ago, talking to somebody, and actually, and I found somewhere where they'd written this as well, the number of clinical psychology posts they said were available in the country was 36. Now, again, that doesn't include counselling, and it doesn't include psychiatry. There were more, uh, more psychiatrists. But you can start to see the huge demand and just what resources are available. They're just not there. But I would say I want to, don't want to pay, be painting such a negative picture because Bangladesh, and as in many countries, the most incredibly beautiful country and the most welcoming and friendly and wonderful people you could ever start to imagine. But it's a poor country, around a third of people living in poverty. Adult literacy is around just around 
And there are 38 languages spoken in the country. So just the sheer practical levels of how are you providing support and information when literacy levels aren't great. And you've got to do so potentially in so many different languages. And at times there are periods of political unrest which have incredible implications right across the country and the provision of services and resources as well. When it comes to the provision of care, specialist services are very limited and the focus is on medical care and surgery. And that's often seen, you could argue, in other places as well, as that's the first point of call. And I think everybody would agree that when anybody has a burn um, injury, your first priority is treating the burn. Of course it is in survival. But the expectation is so that the medical and surgical surgery is so important that almost seen as the only option. And the understanding and awareness that there is a need for psychosocial support is so minimal. And I know this isn't only a case in Bangladesh, many other countries, people, people working in other countries and doing research there would, I hope, agree with me. When specialist services are available, they're often located in the capital city, in this instance, Dhaka. And some of the people were talking about the, the infrastructure to get there and their ability to get there can be really, really very difficult. So I've heard of cases of people traveling for a couple of days on the back of a motorbike to get to the burn centers in Bangladesh after a burn injury. And added to that, knowledge around first aid isn't always great. And so if it was an acid burn, the first most important thing is to wash it off. And in this particular instance I heard, that hadn't happened. So if you imagine somebody had two days on a motorbike with an open wound traveling before they got to any care. But this does also mean that people spend a lot of their time in the hospital. And when they leave, what are their options for coming back for follow-up and outpatient appointments? They're probably being treated in non-specialist services or else they're not coming back and getting that access because it's just not possible. It's just not practical to keep doing that traveling. And I just wanted to draw here to draw the distance between a hospital which has opened anybody and the difference between the hospital when it's provided by an organisation such as the Acid Survivors. So in Dhaka Medical Hospital, there are apparently around 500 patients. The, the ratio of patients to staff, there was, when I was there, I was repeatedly told this, it's not unusual for there to be 100 burns patients being treated by one nurse. Again, the focus is very much on treating medical issues. And within that services, at the time, the number of psychologists in the hospital was a complete zero. There was no psychological input whatsoever. So in that situation, when resources are so, so stretched, walking down the wards here, well, not even down the wards, down the corridors, there are just patients everywhere, and patients bringing so many family members with them as well. So it's an incredibly busy, busy place, and it's quite overwhelming some of the many charities that are working in low and middle income countries in relation to visible difference and appearance issues. Some of these are condition specific um, and others are um, from a very purely psychosocial point of view. Others are coming at it from a surgical point of view. So one of the issues is that when there aren't those resources such as state hospitals that are able to provide these resources, there's a lot of charities working in this field and we're, so often we're relying on those to provide the kind of services and support that we think people would be needing. The Acid Survivors Foundation is based in, in um, Dhaka in Bangladesh and by co in contrast, it's a 20-bed hospital, so it's much smaller and they have plastic and reconstructive surgical surgery services. They do provide psychological care. They have one psychologist and she now spends some of her time in the Dhaka Medical Hospital as well. 
She's there twice a week. And so they are, enable, and they are trying to sort of share the resources that they have. They also provide a lot of legal assistance to people, knowing that the sheer stress around thinking they're not getting support around the issues around the burn are compounding the stress that they're experiencing from all the physical and psychological issues of the burn itself. They can also <coughs> offer financial support. Really importantly, they're also offering training on things like computer skills. They were training people to be electricians so that people can gain some kind of independence because there are many cases of people that they've lost their job. They don't feel they can go back to their family. They've got to start their life again, if you like. So they're skilling them up so that they can become independent. And again, I know other charities do similar, similar things to this as well. And they're also advocating both nationally and locally to try and bring around change in attitudes and legislation and practice around burn injuries. <laughs> Members of the foundation who, uh, they're working there, they have had burns themselves, but now they're working in the departments making pressure garments. Um, anybody who's had a burn, often they're asked to wear very, very tight-fitting pressure garments to keep, sort of flatten the scars, if you like, to try and minimise scarring. So these have to be measured, they're individually made, so that they train up and skill people who have been through the experience themselves to be able to make the um, pressure garments for other burn survivors. And they're a really important part of the treatment, but as a foundation, at times, it's very hard for them to access the fabrics that they need to, to produce them. Some of you in the UK may have, I don't know if you would have seen a, a programme on Channel 4 on Unreported World um, at the end of last year. And it follows the case of Shumi, who's one particular uh, woman who was being treated at the Acid Survivors Foundation. And if you're interested, I think it's still available on YouTube. And if you want to know more about her story, but some of the work that the Acid Survivors Foundation are doing, it's a really fascinating program. And I think it gives a really good insight into what they're, what they're offering and what they're trying to achieve. So how do we make sure that if you're in some resources, some places, there are more resources than others. How could we try to try and lift up the levels of care and make sure that both medical and psychological care is available to the people that need it? Well, in 2013, Interburns set about setting some standards for burn care in low and middle income countries. They brought together a variety of people from NGOs, from policy makers, politicians, governments, international agencies, brought them on board to draw up some standards of care that would identify basic, intermediate, and advanced level burn services. And one of the things that came through that was the importance of training for all health professionals. And this is something that they've gone on to instigate, a training program, which you'll see again in, in, a, in a little while. So they did that, which they mentioned the importance of psychological, psychosocial care, but the focus was on the whole burns treatment. So in 2014, the Acid Survivors Foundation set about doing some standards focusing on psychosocial care. And one of the things we did was having a lot of people, I think there were about almost 80 people, 80, 100 people who were affected by acid burns themselves, were very much engaged in this. So we had, we had, if you like, PPI, the user's voice from the outset. And we ran two days of workshops finding out from them what for them were the real key issues and what did they think should be the standards of psychosocial care. Very much, again, this is the things around acceptance, support being available as and when it's needed, and including the families in that. So these standards of care have been drafted. They focus around service delivery, which includes the provision of psychosocial support, but also support with community reintegration. How do you help somebody when they, they've been in hospital for a long time, get them back into, the, back into society? 
It also looked at issues around the service provider, so such as the provision of counsellors and psychologists and psychiatrists, and organisational issues, so emphasising the need for feedback from people who are using the services and the need for research. So what they've drafted and what they've come up is really comprehensive, but I have to say it's one thing is drawing up guidelines and it's the other getting them into practice and actually making a difference. They've had incredible buy-in from some really influential organisations and ministers, but there's still a very long way to go. So it's great to have them there, but they have to be used and how you make that happen is one of the big questions that I would leave you with. The challenges for the provision of care is largely around funding. There's competing demands on the state Unfortunately, when I was there, it was only about a year since the Rana Plaza disaster, and we were not very far, just around the corner from there. If you remember when the building collapsed and more than 1,000 people were killed. And when the, the country is so poor and they've got disasters like that to deal with, Burns doesn't get a priority when it comes to funding, and certainly the psychology around Burns doesn't get a priority again. The understandings of psychosocial support are really low. Resources, as mentioned, are focused in cities, and sometimes they had an expectation of dependency, expectation that somebody will be supportive and that they will be provided for. And there are very few psychosocial specialists and even fewer fo focusing on visible difference. So what psychosocial interventions are available? CBT, partly around appearance issues, but also around post-traumatic stress. Group and one-to-one -one interventions, but the chances of people being referred quite kind of random because the people that would be the referral perhaps don't fully understand what a psychologist could offer and an expectation that, oh, well, it's a 15-minute chat and everything will then be okay. There have been a three systematic reviews of psychosocial interventions for appearance for people with visible differences in recent years. And when you look at the studies that made it into those systematic reviews, only one of them is from a low-middle-income low country. So this is a, an intervention for people who'd had a limb amputation in India and comparing treatment as usual with a six-session program. And there was an, an aspect of body image within this, but it wasn't the sole focus. And actually, when the, in the course of the systematic review, it didn't come out particularly strongly in terms of the research evidence. So although things are going on, they're not being evaluated or published. Social skills workshops, we know in this country, research has taken place. I've got to give a slight little plug to Robinson et al., 96. So we know that social skills interventions can be really effective, and they're doing them in, in DACA in some form, but they haven't been evaluated. Self-help, we know that could be really useful, and Andrew Thompson is trying to set up um, self-help for people affected by vitiligo in Nigeria, and I've spoken to him about his experiences and the challenges of doing that. Peer support could be really, really invaluable, and one of the things they are providing and they put a big focus on is peer counsellors and peer support and bringing people together. And I'm going to come back to the end again in a moment. The issues around awareness raising and general population campaigns. The idea that if we could just change society's attitudes towards people who look different, perhaps that could make life a whole lot easier for those who are looking different. But changing attitudes, and particularly attitudes to violence and gender relationships, are really deeply entrenched. But the Acid Survivors Foundation in Uganda did a piece of research and concluded that around 50% of people thought that attitudes could change. So let's not go in the fact that 50% didn't think you could. Let's keep positive and think about those that can. That there's a role for politicians, communities and religious leaders and NGOs to do this. This took place, um, uh, this was a, a march through the streets of Dhaka in, in um, March and um, from the Asset Survivors Foundation to raise awareness. This was part of their National Survivors Conference over two days. 
And during that time, they've set up a national acid survivors network called ADAMO, which means unstoppable. And they elected from across, um, representatives from across the country, they've elected this woman on the right, Runa, to be their convener. And she's leads in this group, which is actually a national voice for people who've been affected by acid burns. And the idea is that they will be campaigning both nationally, but representatives. Um, and how the, the passion and enthusiasm from the people working in this field to do this and to put themselves forwards, it's, it's really inspiring that they are there to change, try to change attitudes and make sure that support is spread across the country, not only in Dhaka. A number of initiatives, um, not just in relation to burns, trying to raise awareness. So just this last weekend, there was World Vitiligo Day, which is very much one of the focus of VITSA, one of the uh, societies supporting people with vitiligo in Nigeria. And Face Equality Day is celebrated by the um, Sunshine Foundation in Taiwan. And these are all things that will attract atten media attention and promote, um, um, hopefully, promote changes in attitudes. You may have seen earlier this year some publicity around Shiro's Hangout, a cafe in Agra in India, which has been set up and is run by people who have had acid burns. On the one hand, this is in giving employment, and it, the idea is it's bringing people into contact, trying to break down some of those as barriers. In terms of awareness raising and campaigning, though, one of the concerns is that whenever there's a lot of publicity, are there copycat attacks? Are there people who haven't ever thought about doing things like this to somebody, giving them the idea? So there are guidelines that have been produced around responsible journalism in this area. So to try to promote that the, the impact that this can have, but also not to um, ever give the indication that this is a, a justifiable crime or to give people more ideas of how it actually happens. Just brief mention to remind that burns, most cancers, burns are preventable. So a lot of research is going into burns prevention research and first aid awareness because although we're dealing with the psychosocial consequences, if they didn't happen in the first place, then that would be fantastic. But I couldn't talk about all this issue without talking in any way about the broader societal context. It's a society where beauty is so highly valued. So here you are, you could get your teeth fixed to save your natural beauty. So dentistry, really, really important. The images and the advertising are promoting cosmetic surgery, dental surgery, laser treatment, and very idealized images. So maybe those of you who, who hear from a more body image angle and looking at impressions of the media, you know, I think there's some, got some overlap here, or there's some issues we should, we should take on board with visible difference. We haven't really looked at this stuff so much. And I have to mention the kind of ubiquitous adverts for fair and lovely everywhere, again, giving the impression that how you look in a certain way. And they're just everywhere. These was just walking down the road, having just spent days with people whose appearance is extremely different to this. But there are some positive images. So Laxmi Shah is a woman who had an acid attack when she was 15, and now she's a model, and she's getting a lot of publicity and promoting a more positive image in that respect. So challenges and looking ahead. Again, this is going to get a bit broader, not just in relation to acid burns. So challenges for researchers, I think the main thing is, if anybody's thinking of doing any research in this area, is just to leave your preconceptions at the door. Everything, that every idea that I went there with <laughs> thinking, this, this is what this might be like, forget it. You know, even though I thought I had some familiarity with that part of the world, I think we just need to start afresh. And what we absolutely can't be doing is thinking, great, this works in the UK, let's take it over to Bangladesh. 
We need to really understand what's get, what the, 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 the local issues are and what the situation is there. Funding is always an issue for any kind of research and when priorities and we're competing for, in this case, you know, we're competing against whether psychology is worthy of funding, whether Burns is worthy of funding. I mentioned the literacy issues earlier is a real difficulty. And the understanding awareness of, of what research is. So I sat with people talking about research and you realise that their understanding of what, res what research might involve was very different to what I thought it might involve. Health professionals and NGOs. The idea that, you, well, you've done a survey, you know, we've asked those six people, yeah, we, you know, we need to do some more than this. So they understand it and the importance and the value that research could bring. But maybe that's because they've just got other issues to be dealing with. And the importance of engaging key stakeholders, again, was one of the messages that we heard yesterday. There's an issue from around measures. So I mentioned the Derriford Appearance Scale earlier and Tim Moss's work on that. And he's worked in translations of this. It's been used in Ethiopia and Taiwan, as well as Bangladesh and Nepal. And what people there have had to adapt it, the wording, to make it appropriate for that particular situation. So changing supermarket to marketplace or beach to swimming, because there are no beaches in Nepal. But also interested in to what extent cultural differences and those constructs, are they the same or are they different? And we need to understand those a little more. We haven't got normative data in low-income countries. So we're perhaps comparing it to norms from the UK, and is that really appropriate? Recruitment and gatekeepers can be difficult at any time, but there's just, it's even harder. And there was this wonderful statement in a paper this year that just said, yeah, interviewing patients was a difficult task. Where we published the research, I went through Body Image, the first 18 volumes of it, looking at the titles and abstracts. There have been 759 art articles published so far and of those, only 24 are to do with visible difference anyway. And when you consider where they're from, none of them are from low-income countries. Partly because this research is being perhaps published in Burns journals or craniofacial journals, which the clinicians may be more likely to access. But um, perhaps it would be useful for us to consider trying to get our work into body image journals as well. So possible ways ahead. I've been talking about Burns. There's research in Burns and in Cleft, but there's a whole host of other visible differences. So perhaps we need to broaden this out. The importance of PPI and having service users or patients at the heart of it, I think, is really important. I'm really conscious that I think I've spoken too much about negative issues because there is an assumption, of perhaps, that if you're looking like this, looking different, then you can't be happy with the way that you look. But I did spend some time talking to people about positive body image whilst I was there, and it's clear that many of the women I spoke to felt great about the way that they look. Interventions need to be culturally appropriate Peer support is really, really valuable, but it's got to be accessible. And how do you make it accessible? And that's something, actually, that we could learn a lot from because it's, we really struggle to have peer support interventions running effectively in Burns here in the UK, works better elsewhere. But we could learn a lot from other countries. And self-help inter um, interventions could be very useful. What's missing, I notice, as I go through what has been published, there doesn't seem to be any theory in this particular area. We could be using considering ways of using social media and technology. There's adverts for Vodafone and other networks all over the place. So perhaps this is something everybody is walking around still with their mobile phones and tablets, which you may not expect. So we still need to do more to raise awareness of psychosocial issues, involving community and health workers in rural areas. So for example, midwives are used to in um, burns prevention research. Perhaps we could also be using them to encourage them 
act in ways of promoting acceptance of attitudes towards people with visible differences, because there aren't the psychologists, and it wouldn't be the psychologists that need to do that, but people who are out there spread across the country would have a role to play. And the importance of collaborations between and within NGOs. For example, the Asset Survivors Foundation and Interburns are working very closely together. So two things I just wanted to flag up. Within CLEFT, there's now the Global CLEFT Task Force. But the focus on this around sharing knowledge and resources amongst richer and resource-poor countries. And one of the things that Nikki and Nikki Stock and Martin and Matt Ridley are all here are working on is developing <coughs> outcome measures that could be used globally, so in bringing in lower-income countries as well as those with higher resources. And they started this by the process of asking what does a well-adjusted person with a cleft look like? And then using a stepped approach, so there's a, a small number of questions that could be asked. But if uh, people have the resources, they could build on that and add in more measures and more items. And they're currently trialling that approach in, in more than 30 countries. And I think that's a really sensible way to go so that people are using something that is suitable to their con particular country. What both they and organisations like Interburns are doing is taking a very inclusive collaborations and relationships. They're taking an adaptive approach and keeping things simple where possible because it's got to be the way ahead rather than trying to introduce something that is far too complex. But it's all very applied, but they're all taking the time and the patience. This isn't anything that's going to happen quickly. Um, the charity Interburns, when I spoke to them, we've been going to Dhaka Medical Hospital and training professionals there for 10 years, and they're just starting to see a difference. This isn't going to be a quick fix. I just wanted to mention that we do a lot of work promoting body image and visible difference, not as separately, but thinking they should be overlapping. And as we've seen and heard from the stands and the talks today, the, the, there's such impressive work being done on a global scale in relation to body image interventions such as that through the Dove Self-Esteem Project. And some of that is taking place in low-income countries, but maybe, we should, maybe there are opportunities to think about ways in which um, we could be including issues around visible difference within this. And just as the cleft global task force is up and running, then there are talks about Burns having a very similar approach. What can we actually, in higher income countries, learn from low income countries? And actually, I think there are huge opportunities for us to learn from them. Which it's absolutely not a case of us suggesting what they should be doing. Unfortunately, there are so many people out there that are affected that actually if we could start to manage people's support and their concerns when resources are so low, then what a fantastic resource that we could learn from them. And I think they could be the pioneers of how to provide things such as peer support. It's also important to us because, unfortunately, in the UK, the incidence of acid attacks is on the increase, which came to light earlier this year. So in conclusion, most people with visible differences actually live in low-income countries. But to date, most of our research and support is provided in high-income countries, and the research is coming from that field as well. So I think actually what we should be doing is collaborating more and we have a lot to learn from one another for the hope of improving the provision of care. Thank you very much. A big thanks to Di for this powerful and important talk and for reminding us that as a field we should also be looking outside of our western borders. Thanks to our conference sponsors, the Healing Foundation, the University of the West of England and the Dove Self-Esteem Project. Thanks also to David Interkow for our theme music.